welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Amen. If you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to be in 1 John 3, 1 John 3, and again in Luke 19. We'll be in both of those today. You may want to find both of them. Well, it is summertime, and for most of our kids and our teachers, this is a time of great happiness, right? School is out. Let's relax and enjoy uh, enjoy the summer. Now, for the last 30 years of my life in high school or elementary, high school, college, and as a teacher, I've gone through this yearly rhythm where I would um, get to this point and I would celebrate summer, and then all of a sudden, summer would be about halfway over. And I'd have this stark moment of realization like, I've got to go back to school soon. It's gone too quick. And then about two weeks before school would start out, I would just feel like this this darkness start to creep into my life, like I was losing something, like something about my life was dying. And so I would go into like this panic mode for two weeks. One week before school started, I would start to get a pit in my stomach and I would feel physically sick as I worried about going back to school on the first day. And then with about two nights left, I would just quit sleeping as I panicked about going back to school. But then I would get back to school and I'd realize after the first day, Okay, it wasn't that bad. I had developed this theory about what it was going to be like that made me absolutely dread the moment of going back to school. And then when it got there, I realized it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. Now, the reason I bring that up is I think sometimes as Christians, we look at some Bible teachings that way. Like we know they're good. We know they're from God. We know they're necessary. But we just kind of dread them. We we feel like they're going to steal something from us and we develop this theory about how horrible it is going to be, about how it's going to steal our happiness. That's why we have named this series the Dreaded Money Series. It's going to be horrible. Because that's the way we kind of expect the talk and the biblical teachings on money is. Like, it's going to be horrible. Our expectation is, is that when a church gets in financial need, the bank account is running low, or there's a building project, the pastor's going to get up, and he's going to pull up those good teachings about money, and he's going to tell us to fill up the offering plate. Our pastor is going to question our faith if we don't give, and he's going to guilt us until we give. And my hope with naming this series the Dreaded Money series as that there is going to be a great irony to this. I hope it's like the first day of school where, where we dread it to the moment we get there and then we realize actually what the Bible calls us to do is not that bad. So what we're going to be focused on in this series for the next several weeks is not what we need to do financially as a church, those things I I trust to God. What we want to focus on is to have a biblical view of money. Because having a a biblical view of money is a key part of our faith. See, the Bible again and again and again addresses the danger of money and the danger of putting our trust and our hope in money. And it gives us instructions on how we should view money, what ways are acceptable for us to acquire money, and how we should steward the money that God has given us. And the Bible is so clear that this impacts the way that our impacts our walk with God. 
Now, if you've been here for the past several weeks, maybe this year, you may say, this church seems to talk about money a lot. Because we've already addressed this topic twice this year. And let me explain the reason for that. The reasoning for that is this year, the beginning of the year, I announced a focus for our church for this coming year, for 2023, that we would focus on being a church of generous giving. And we had two goals with that that focus. Goal number one was, as a church, we want to give more. We want to focus on ways that we can impact the world more with the finances that God has given us. That means we want to give more to missions as we can, and we want to be a church that gives and pours money into our community when it is needed. And God has blessed us with opportunity. Sometimes it doesn't feel like a blessing, but he has blessed us. Our deacons came in our last business meeting, and our deacons have a benevolence fund, and that that fund is put together for them to be able to care for the needs of people if a bill needs to be paid, if gas needs to be given, if somebody comes to our church and they don't have somewhere to stay or they don't have food. We as a church care for people in our community and we have a, uh, a set amount of money that we put aside for that for a year. After only three months into our budget, our deacons came back and said, we need to put more money in the Benevolence Fund because God has given us opportunities to be generous to those around us. We want to grow in that in a church, as a church because giving away money to people who need it is an important part of the health of our church. Because what that says is that it is not my money, it is not our money, it is not the money that we gave, that is God's money used to do his purpose. And as Jesus walked this earth, he again and again said, take care of the needy. So that was goal number one. Goal number two is for us as individuals to reflect to that same heart in our personal financials, that we give freely to God, that we give freely to others following biblical laws or biblical instructions on doing that. And that's an important part of our spiritual health in which we say, my money is not for my benefit, but it is for the benefit of God and it will be spent as he calls me to spend it. So today we're going to be in 1 John chapter 13 to start off with, and we're going to be hearing from John the Apostle. Now, John the Apostle was one of Jesus's three inner circle. Like there were three people that Jesus was very close to. John was one of them. John, when he writes the gospel of John, when he tells the story of Jesus, he never refers to himself as his name. I love this about John. He takes on a new identity. He doesn't refer to himself as John or the fisherman. He refers to himself simply as the one that Jesus loves. At the Last Supper, when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, the Bible records, John wasn't just sitting by Jesus. This this is weird in our context. Listen, John was laying on Jesus's chest. We would say today, that's weird. Like, why two men laying on each other? John was that close to Jesus. That's the relationship they have. John is an expert on the love of Christ. And what he's going to give us today in his scripture is he's going to give us a view of what God's love is and how that affects how we view money and resources. So if you've got your Bibles with me, read 1 John. This is verse three or chapter 3, verse 16. It says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Your first take-home truth this morning is real love was introduced to us by Jesus. Real love was introduced to us by Jesus. Now, when you see love in the Bible, one of the things that you need to understand is in the ancient Greek that this was written in, they don't use love the same way that we use love. 
In America, we have one word for love. I say, I love my wife, I love my dog, I love my church, and I love pizza. I use the same word for all of those, but those are not the same kind of love. In the Greek world, there were different words for love that, that were different kinds of love. You had the word eros, which was romantic love. Philo, which was brotherly love, the way that you and I love each other. But the word that we focus on most in Scripture is the word agape. Agape is simply godly love. And so the word that John is using here is that agape word. This, this is godly love that we have experienced. And he expresses godly love from Jesus as an action. We know that Jesus loves us. We perceived it. We understand the love of Jesus because he laid down his life for us. It's an action that John uses to define the word love. It's not a feeling. It's something that Christ did for us. And so here's what we can learn from John about love. Number two take home truth real love is point a free we see this in christ that real love requires no quid pro quo we don't have to have something given to us to give somebody love godly love agape love is something that is given freely it is a complete gift as a matter of fact this is how christ can love unlovable people of which we are and why he can call us to love unlovable people because love agape love is not a matter of what somebody has earned it is a matter of what we are capable of giving and christ gives us this free love this actionable sacrificial love by dying on the cross for us while we we were still sinners. Number two, or point B, real love is sacrificial. We see that, that love has a cost. It doesn't just say Jesus loves us and you know that. It says we know God loves us. We know there is a sacrificial of love because Jesus laid down his life for us. It took a price to give love. Understand this. If we love people in a godly way, it will take personal sacrifice. If you love God the way that he calls us to love him, it will take some degree of personal sacrifice. What love says is you are more important than me. And I've got the actions to prove that. Point C is real love is reproductive. You see what Paul is saying here if you look at verse 16. He says, we perceive the love of God because he laid down his life for us. And then he mirrors that image and he says, then we should love or lay down our life for others. See, the love of God should change us. If we come to church and we experience Jesus Christ and we have not changed, I would say we probably have not actually experienced Jesus Christ. We probably have not actually experienced that and know what it feels like. And so when Paul introduces us to real love, he's, or, or I'm sorry, not Paul, John introduces real love. He says, real love will change you. You will have such a value on that kind of love that you should turn around in love that way. Now, he's then going to turn and give an example of what it looks like to love in a sacrificial way like Jesus did. And what's interesting about this is he doesn't turn specifically to any number of things that we could have guessed. What he turns to immediately is if you love people, how you handle your finances. Read with me verse 17 and 18 here. He says, but whoso has this world's good and seeing his brother have need and shuts up his bowels of compassion, that's, that's the King James way of saying heart, who shuts up his heart from him, how dwells the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. 
See, straight from where he goes, he begins to talk about love, and then he begins to talk about how love affects how we handle our money. How we handle our money is an effect of the love we receive and the love for others. So here, here's where he goes. He says, anybody who has the world's goods, let's translate it completely literally, literally. the world's goods is the things that you need to live. That's wealth, that, that's, that's resources, that's security. The way you and I might translate that is the person who has all of these things, the person who is rich, and he's going to give some instructions. Now, immediately, we sit here in this church and, oh, we're checked out. Good. These instructions about caring for the poor and giving money away and handling my finances differently, that's for the rich. And I'm not rich. Everybody knows I'm not rich. Look at me. I live in Batesville. Is there any rich people in Batesville? No, that's for people with way more money than me. And the reason we feel that way is culturally, our definition of rich is always who has more money than me. I know people with $5 million in the bank, and they think rich people have $10 million in the bank. I know people who make $10,000 a year, and they think rich people make $30,000 a year. In our cultural context, we believe that somebody who makes more money than me is rich. And our only measurable statistic in America is someone who has more. But if we take that same concept and we look worldwide, if we can just look outside of Batesville, Arkansas for a few minutes, if we can look outside of the culture that we're familiar with and the world that we see, I think we'll find we are rich. The median income per day across the world is $7.35 U.S. money. That's the median income across the world per day, a little over $7. We pay more money to teenagers getting an after-school job to mess up our order at McDonald's in one hour than a lot of people across the world make in a day. If you call somebody to come mow your yard, what you will find is that you will, call, or you will owe them probably 10 times more than what a lot of people make in a day for what they can do in an hour. See, our world, our world does not necessarily meet the actual world. See, half of the world, what it means median, half of the world makes less than $7.35 today. Statistics would tell us that if your household income is $41,000 or more a year, that you are in the top 3% richest people of the world. If you have a household income of $100,000 or more, you are in the top 1% of richest people in the entire world. Uh, let, me, let me put that into context for you. Several uh, months ago, we took Oakland. She had her three-month appointment. And I guess, I guess for a three-year-old, she's very tall. And what they told us is she said, for a three-year-old right now, she is in the 99th percentile of height. And the way they explained that to me is this. If you took a hundred three-year-olds and put them in the room, she would probably be the tallest one. Here's what statistics tell us. If we took a random cross-section of people from across the world, a hundred different people, you would be in the top 10 richest people in the room. Many of us would be the richest person in the world. So when the Bible talks about richness and wealth, we can't disregard it just because we know somebody that is richer than us. The Bible is talking to us. We are the elite richest people of the world. And here's what the Bible says to us. If you have wealth, if you have resources that others don't have, and you see somebody in need, and you close up your heart to them, he asks a rhetorical question. If that's true of you, how can you claim the love of God? 
How can you say you have the love of God in you when the love of God is that Jesus sacrificed and died for you, that he freely gave you not because you deserved it, but because he loved you? How can you claim to have that same love in you if you as a rich person see someone in need and ignore their need? How can you claim to be a Christian? How can you claim that that love has been created in you and transformed you? So the point that John is getting at, take home truth number three, is becoming a follower of Christ should change how you view money. Because see, the normal view of money in our world is much different than what the Bible teaches us when it comes to viewing money. The normal view of money in this world says, it's your money, do what you want to with it. If it just makes you feel happy to work and go buy Gucci and Armani clothes and you want to be seen as rich when you drive a Lamborghini or a Ferrari, you earned it, go do it. If what makes you happy with your money is to put in a bank account and just look at those numbers every month as they, as they work for you, if that's what makes you happy, go do it. That, that's what the world teaches us. That's, that's the norm for us. But scripture, scripture seems to have a different view. Scripture seems to teach that if the love of God is reflected in you, the love of God will be reflected in how you view and use your money and how you care for others with your money, how you spread the gospel with your money. What John is saying is if that's true, if that's not true in you, that you use your money for those reasons, how can you say that you reflect a loving God who sacrificed his life for you if you cannot sacrifice money for the needs of others? And we see a great example of someone who, who undergoes this transformation over in Luke 19, if you want to start to turn there. We see, a, see an example of somebody who had the resources, who had the world's good, who was rich, and yet when he comes in contact with Jesus Christ, everything about his life changes in an instant. This man's name is Zacchaeus. Read with me here in chapter 19. I'll give you just a second to be there. We're going to read verses 1 and 2 to start off with. Verse 1, it says, And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Remember that. Jericho is going to be important here in just a minute. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was, a, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. Hold your Bibles up and we're going to come back there. Now, some of you have heard the story of Zacchaeus. In fact, there's even a children's song about it. How many of you guys know the children's song about Zacchaeus? A bunch of you. A bunch of you church kids, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. How would you like for your legacy to all Christians throughout time to be that you were a wee little man? That's Zacchaeus. But the song leaves out a few things about Zacchaeus. Yes, the story that it's telling is true, but it leaves out a couple of things that are key to understand this. The Bible says that Zacchaeus was a publican. That's Bible speak for a tax collector. Now, now understand this about tax collectors. In America, a tax collector is someone who works for the IRS as a government employee that receive a meager government salary and, and, and our taxes are regulated by code. 
in Rome or in Israel this time, which was occupied by Rome, that's not how tax collection worked. In Rome, what the Romans would do is they would come in and they would occupy somebody or some area, and then they would try to find somebody in that area to collect taxes for them. Somebody who knew the lay of the land, who knew who had money and who didn't have money. Somebody who knew what businesses were profitable and which businesses weren't profitable. And taxes at this time worked like sales numbers in a company. They would, they would report, this is how much money I brought in this month. There was no code that everybody owed a certain amount. The tax collector's job was to benefit Rome by bringing in as much tax money as they could. Secondly, the tax uh, collector had all of the authority to raise taxes even higher than that for personal gain. And so most tax collectors were rich because this system encouraged people to get rich by, by cheating on taxes to make taxes as high as possible. And for this reason, tax collectors were hated. They were traitors to their country. They were thieves. And they had resources that nobody else had. They got rich by exploiting people below them. This is who Zacchaeus was. He was completely, 100%, a wealthy man, all of it stolen or taken, um, taken unethically. Now, now, continue to read the story with me in verses 3 and 4. And he, that's Zacchaeus, and he sought to see Jesus who was, or who Jesus and who he was, and could not for the press because he was of little stature. He was a wee little man. And he ran before and climbed into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. All right, let's put some cultural context in this now that we know what a uh, tax collector is, okay? So understand this. If you read this 2,000 years ago in Israel, you would see that word Jericho, the town named Jericho, and you would think this is a city of great prosperity. If Zacchaeus lives in Jericho, he's probably a very rich person. And then you would see that Zacchaeus was a publican, that he was a tax collector. And now you're thinking this man is robbing the richest of the rich. Zacchaeus is a very, very rich man because he is not only just a tax collector, he's a tax collector in one of the most wealthy cities in the region. And then you would read, not only is he a tax collector, that he is a chief among tax collectors. That means either he is in charge of all the tax collectors in the city or that he is the best of all the tax collectors in the city. And what you figure out from that is Zacchaeus was loaded and suddenly you start to sing that Zacchaeus song a little bit differently Zacchaeus was a very rich man and a very rich man was he he couldn't climb up a sycamore tree because his pockets were too full of money this dude was loaded I mean he had a lot a lot of money but even with all of this money that he had he still wasn't happy the world would tell you that Zacchaeus had achieved happiness. Zacchaeus was the equivalent of a doctor, not just a doctor, a doctor at the very top of their field in America. I heard a story one time about a cardiologist who was the top of his field. He worked five days a week and made bukus of money at that. And he worked on his day off as well. And what he would do as a cardiologist is he would go read EKGs, you know, little tinker tape paper things, I think. Nurses don't get on to me if I'm wrong. And he would make $5,000 per EKG that he read. And in one day, he could read five of them. We're talking about a man who made $25,000 on his day off. That was his walking around money. That's who Zacchaeus was. 
When we talk about Zacchaeus, we're not talking about a financial investor. We're talking about somebody who is a Wall Street hedge fund manager. This man is rich. But he's still not happy. He's still not fulfilled in, in all of the things that he has, all of the success that he's had, all the money he has, he's still not happy. His life is incomplete. And we see that in how he pursues Jesus. Zacchaeus didn't pursue Jesus with a mere curiosity or, or a, uh, a just a, a wanting to check him out. There was a dedicated pursuit of Jesus because he was looking for something more. Think about the story. Think about what it's saying. Zacchaeus wanted to get to Jesus, but there was a crowd around Jesus, and he couldn't see him because he was a short man. So mentally, he thought, okay, where is Jesus going to go next? He went ahead of the crowd, and he climbed up in a tree so that he could see Jesus as he walked by. You may have heard that story so many times that you've never really thought that through. What would we call that today? Stalking. That is the exact word I was going to use. Take those actions and put it in another context and tell me if you think it's weird. Let's say that there was a boy or a man who had a crush on your daughter or your sister or your wife. And he couldn't get her attention, so he figured out how she drives home every day. And he was scared that he wouldn't see her when she drove by. So he climbed up in a tree and he climbed out on a branch over the road so he could look down into her car as she drove by. Would that be weird? That's the point where we get the police involved. But that is the kind of pursuit that Zacchaeus pursued Jesus with. That, that dedicated looking for a way to get to Jesus. This is so extreme that Jesus notices it. In a crowd of people, Jesus turns his attention to one man. That's how extreme Zacchaeus is going. What brings Zacchaeus to a point where he wants to pursue Jesus with that much dedication? It's because Zacchaeus had got to a point where he realized, I have all of the money in the world. I have everything that everybody has ever told me would make me happy. And I'm still empty. I'm still not happy. There's got to be something more out there than what the world has told me I need. Your next take home truth number four is money will never give you peace, fulfill you, or bring you joy. See, there's a cultural lie out there that says that money is all you need. Whatever you need is just a little bit more than you have, and then you will be happy. And at the core of our being, when we open the Bible and we see teaching about money and we begin to resist that teaching, it's because we have been taken in by the lie that money will make me happy. I can't give a little bit extra right now because I have some financial goals, and if I get to that financial goal, if I have enough money to buy this thing, if I have enough money to put in my savings account, I will finally feel secure and happy. And then we get to that point and go, I still can't give because, you know, now I have some extra goals that I want to make too. We got to this point that was a starting point. But I can't, I can't handle my money biblically because I believe that eventually I will get to a point where money will fulfill me. Y'all pray for me because I may be about to commit a sin here. I'm going to, in a sermon, tell a dumb blonde joke. Okay? To all of our blondes, I'm not offending you because you're not dumb blondes. You're very beautiful, very smart, very talented blondes. This is about dumb blondes. I heard this joke one time, and it said, how do you make a dumb blonde run herself to death? You put her in a circle room and tell her to go sit down in the corner. 
and you get this image of this, this lady, or maybe it's a guy, I guess a dumb blonde could be a guy, that might be better, running in a circle, following this wall, thinking that one day they will get to a corner if they just go long enough, running in a circle, uselessly chasing a corner that is not there. And that is what money does to us. Whatever amount of money you have, there's something in you that will tell you, you need more money. And so you just run in a circle, chasing the next number and the next number and the next goal and the next job and the next pay raise, trying to get to a point where you will be happy. Yet happiness and fulfillment will always elude you. It's always whatever the next financial step is. That's where Zacchaeus was. This is a, a trap from Satan, a lie from Satan that keeps us entangled in, in something that we can't escape. Changing gears for just a second. In, in your Old Testament, there's a book called the book of Ecclesiastes. This is written by a man named Solomon. If you're not familiar with Solomon, Solomon was King David's son, so he would have been king of Israel. Even by secular historians' uh, standards, Solomon was the richest man who ever lived. His wealth at the time was equivalent to $2 trillion today. Nowhere close to anything that anybody in our world has. That's 14 times more money than Jeff Bezos, the creator and founder of Amazon, has. That's 10 times more money than Elon Musk has. The richest man in the world right now is named Bernard, Bernard Arnault. He is the richest man in the world. That is still eight times more money than Bernard has. Solomon had everything. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, at the end of his life, he writes this heartbreaking poem, letter, and basically he's searching and his old age with all the stuff he has he's searching for the meaning of life listen to how he opens that book up it says vanity of vanity says the preacher vanity of vanities all is vanity what profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun Look, Solomon opens up with that word vanity. That means useless. Like, everything is useless. I've spent all of my life working. I've spent all of my life pursuing things under the sun, and I'm at the end of my life, and it's useless. It's good for nothing. It didn't make me happy. I didn't accomplish anything. If you go farther in that book into chapter 6, listen to what he says. He says, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that he lacks nothing for himself of all he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity, and it is an evil affliction. If a man begets a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial, burial I say that a stillborn child is better than he. For it comes in vanity and departs in darkness, and his name is covered with darkness. Though it is not seen the sun or know anything, this has more rest than that of men. Even if he lives a thousand years twice, but has not seen goodness, do not all go to one place? All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. Listen to what Solomon's saying. He's like, here's this great evil that I see is that people spend their life pursuing wealth and sometimes God gives them that wealth and he blesses them with wealth and yet in the end, they don't even get to enjoy it. He says it is better to not even be born than to live in pursuit of something that you can never catch because we spend all of this time focusing on money and our soul is not satisfied. And that's the same conclusion that Zacchaeus has reached. 
Zacchaeus says, I have everything the world has to offer. I can, I can do everything I want to do. There is nothing left for me to accomplish. But my soul is still not satisfied. I'm still hungry for something that I can't grasp. I still, I still need something that I don't have. And so he begins to pursue Jesus because he knows there's something about him. Listen to what happens next in, in this story, verses five through seven. And Jesus came to the place and he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at your house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, that's the crowd, when the crowd saw it, they all murmured, saying, that he is gone to be with the guest of a man that is a sinner? Listen, Jesus notices Zacchaeus and he sees how desperately hungry Zacchaeus is. And Jesus reaches out to him. Zacchaeus was a social outcast, but Jesus didn't care. Zacchaeus was a sinner. He was a thief and a traitor to his people and to God, but, but Jesus doesn't care. Jesus is judged for sitting with him, but Jesus doesn't care. He simply looks at Zacchaeus and says, I'm coming to your house. Now, for most of us, that would be the grandest nightmare of all things. It's for somebody to walk up to us and say, I'm coming to your house right now. You're going to fix me supper. <laughs> But for Zacchaeus, it was a blessing because Zacchaeus' house would have been big and full of things, would have had all of the beautiful tapestries, draperies, tables, chairs, the most comfortable bed in the city, but it was the loneliest place in the city. And Jesus says, I'm going to walk into your loneliness. I'm going to walk into the place that you've been rejected. I'm going to give you meaning. I'm going to fulfill you in a new way. And we see this instant change when Zacchaeus feels that kind of love. Not later, when Zacchaeus feels the sacrificial love of Jesus, we see a change in him. Listen to verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any van by false accusation, I restore to him fourfold. Your next take home truth is Jesus will give you peace, fulfill you, and bring you joy. It's number five. See, Zacchaeus had lived a life where his whole life had been in pursuit of get the money. But when he encounters the love of Christ, his whole life now comes about give away the money. Zacchaeus has spent his whole life robbing others and taking advantage of them. But when he comes into the contact of Christ's love, he now says, I'm going to repay whatever money I took falsely. But not only that, I'm going to pay interest. I'm going to give 400% of what I took. Zacchaeus had lived a life where he chased and thought he could be fulfilled by goods. But in the moment that he meets Jesus, he is fulfilled by Jesus. What he basically says is, who cares about money? Money is useless. To quote Solomon, vanity of all vanities. I found what my soul longs for. I found what makes me happy. And so for that reason, I think a lot of times when we, we do the dreaded money series, when we talk about this teaching, I think part of the reason that I have a hard time with this, I think part of the reason Christians struggle with giving freely and giving openly and giving the way that God calls us to, is because we don't allow our hearts to be fulfilled by Jesus Christ. I think for many of us, we come to church, we sing a song, we listen to the teaching, but we don't walk through this world with our hearts 
full of the gospel and full of Christ's love. See, what will fill our soul is not simply some kind of mere religion. What will fill our soul is when we look at our value. When our value is in how much money is in our bank account or how big our house is or what kind of car we drive or how much money we're making at this job, it may not even be about the money. It may just be about the number and comparing it to other people. When our hearts are full of that, it keeps us from Christ. But here's what the gospel tells me. Danny, if you want to start making your way up here. Here's what the gospel tells me. It is that our value, our value is not in what we look like. Our value is not in how much money we have in a bank account. Our value is not in how successful we are in our business life. Our value is in this, that the God who created the universe loves us enough to give his son for us. And if we can live with that value, everything else falls away. So this morning, I just want to ask you, whether you're a believer or not, I want to ask you, can you see yourself in that value? And maybe your step today has nothing to do with money. Maybe your step today has to do with putting your faith in Jesus Christ and coming to know him and choosing to follow follow him and letting him fulfill you. But maybe you're like me and maybe you've let your heart grow just a little bit cold as a believer. And maybe today what God's calling us to is to just worship openly and focus and celebrate and praise God for the value that he has given us, for his love for us, and for what it means to be his child. If you want to talk, if you want to pray, I'm up here, I'm waiting on you. Let's stand and worship, please.